Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I just I want to get started because I want to give you every minute you can have with our wonderful guests tonight. Um, welcome to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. We love having you here, and I, I believe this is our third White House series with Leslie and the crew, and um, we do hope they'll come back every year. It's always a packed house, and we love having them. We just want to tell you a little about what our exhibition is right now that's on view. It's Beauty's Legacy, Gilded Age Portraits in America. And it will be closing on March 9th, so if you haven't seen it, it's beautiful. Come back to visit. And for our upcoming programs and exhibitions, please pick up our new spring brochure. Tonight's program, The White House, First Mothers, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, The Heart of Our Public Programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I also want to thank our trustees with us tonight, or, or she's soon to come tonight, Susan Danilo, with a group from U of P alumni. So we're, we've got a few seats saved for her. Um, and Lon Jacobs, who may be with us tonight also. He was signed up on the list. So, and all our Chairman's Council members with us. Let's give them all a great hand. So we do want to welcome the group that is with us right now. That's the Women of Williams from Williams College. We thank you for coming. We are all scattered around the auditorium, I know, but welcome. It's a big group. Enjoy the show. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. We always ask audience members to please, we invite you to the two standing mics in the aisles, and we ask that you do this so that this, the speakers on stage and the audience can hear you, and we're also recording it for a podcast for the greater world as well. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with Cokie Roberts and Gil Troy, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store, those of you who are new to the museum. Our museum store is on the 77th Street side of the building. How many are members with us tonight? Just We have a few members. And I think there were a few people who are not yet members, so we invite you to join. You get free admission to the museum, great discounts on our public programs, and much more. Just speak to our colleagues when you leave tonight and become part of the family. So, Tonight, we are thrilled to welcome Cokie Roberts back to the New York Historical Society. Ms. Roberts is a political commentator for ABC News and, and a senior news anal analyst for National Public Radio. She previously co-anchored this week on ABC and has received numerous awards and honors during her more than 40 years in broadcasting, including three Emmy Awards. And she's only 35. <laughs> she is also... She has also been inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame and was cited by the American Women in Radio and Television as one of the 50 greatest women in the history of broadcasting. She is the best-selling author. She is the best-selling author of several books, including Founding Mothers and Ladies of Liberty. And I'll just insert the note that she will be returning here on April 8th with her husband, Steve Roberts, 
for a very special program, our Haggadah. So please pick up our brochure and sign up for those programs as well. We're also delighted to welcome back Gil Troy, a professor of history at, at McGill University in Montreal. Prior to this, Professor Troy taught history and literature at Harvard for two years. He is the editor of the revised edition of the multi-volume classic History of Presidential Elections, as well as the author of several books of political history, including Hillary Rodham Clinton, Polarizing First Lady, and Mr. and Mrs. President, From the Trumans to the Clintons, excuse me, Clintons, and Gil Troy will also be returning for another White House series program with his brother, Trevi Troy, and I just imagined in their bedroom when there were kids in their bunk beds, <laughs> leaning over, and Lincoln, and Washington, and I just, I just uh, think this is going to be a great night. So we are also very pleased to welcome Elizabeth Merrin, to the New York Historical Society. Ms. Marin is a professor of journalism at Boston University. As a former correspondent for the Los Angeles Times and a member of the Papers Washington Bureau, she wrote on a range of topics that included presidential politics and the White House. She also previously served as a reporter and news editor, editor on several newspapers, including the Washington Post. Ms. Marin, we thank you for coming. She's replacing Bonnie Angelo, who unfortunately could not be with us tonight. And we thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Our moderator this evening is Leslie Stahl, who has been a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes for 23 seasons. She, too, is 35. Prior to joining 60 Minutes, Ms. Stahl was a CBS News White House correspondent during the Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush presidencies. During much of that time, she also served as moderator of CBS News's Face the Nation, where she interviewed Margaret Thatcher, Yasser Arafat, and many others, as well as virtually every top US official. She has a collection of Emmy Awards for her interviews and reporting, including a Lifetime Achievement Emmy. Leslie will also be returning for another program in part of our Bernard Nyren Schwartz classic film series on April 25th, she'll be moderating a program on the heiress with opening remarks with Katherine Weiler. So come join us for that. Okay, now it's time to turn off cell phones, electronic devices, no photography, please. We have a house photographer tonight. And now please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Boy, girl, I like that. It's going to be a dinner party. Okay, well, I'm awfully glad you've, you're here and that many of you have come back. So Freud said, a man who has, a man who has been the indisputable favorite of his mother keeps for life the feeling of a conqueror. Men remember that, and mothers remember that. <laughs> so I was thinking that we should really call our discussion Mama's Boys, or in Italian, Mammoni. So I'm going to make a statement. Here it is. Most of our presidents had strong mothers who put their precious boys up on a pedestal and told them they were destined for greatness. Myth or fact? 
And let's do a go-around on that Some one. yes, some no. Some <laughs> myth, some fact. But mostly yes. <laughs> I think you need to think about someone like Miss Lillian, who said when, uh, when she heard that her son was running for president, she said, of what? <laughs> Guess not in that case. Maybe I should have said, our greatest presidents. Oh. <laughs> Gil? <laughs> John Kennedy said that every American mother wants her son to grow up to be president, but no American mother wants her son to grow up to be a politician. And that becomes a bit of a tension. Um, on the whole, there, ha there have been a spate of mama's boys, and in fact, often sissified boys, uh, to use an old-fashioned expression from the 19th century. Uh, Harry Truman, Woodrow Wilson uh, were made fun of and were very bookish. Um, but there have been also outliers. And so as historians, we don't want to be too broad in our generalizations. But there is this strange phenomenon of um, very selfish also, very much eclipsing their siblings. Um, and the mother's just focusing yeah. on that one. <laughs> and conqueror. where's dad and all this? Yeah. And, and, and think how the siblings felt. But, um, but I, I think Mama's Boy implies that they're sort of are sissified and weak. And I don't think that that was necessarily the case. The mothers might have been strong, but the men were not necessarily weak. And they didn't necessarily like their mothers. And, uh, and we, we can talk about that. But um, I think that, uh, so I, I, I think it's too broad to say that the mothers were all, uh, all there supporting them, because I'm not sure the men necessarily See, felt that way. Now, I was here to lift the role of mother. I think <laughs> I'm going to have a difficult time. Well, I thought that we just might talk about individuals and get right down to the specific cases of the relationship between mother and boy who grew up to be president and do some rounds. And I'm going to start with Koki because she's our expert on the founding fathers. And? and do we know anything really about their mother, their relationship? Well, we know about, we know about Mary Washington. Um, George Washington was 10 when his father died. And he was the oldest of five living children at that point. Uh, he did have older step um, brothers from his father's first marriage. So there were some older people in the family. But his mother was very much on him. And she did, um, she did try to direct him. His older half-brother had tried to send him off to sea. And she had heard from a member of her family that that was not a good thing for him to do. So she came and got him off the ship. Uh, but um, but he really didn't like her. And uh, when he moved back to Mount Vernon after the Revolutionary War, before he was president, she was supposed to go live with his brother John. And then John died. And so he was terrified that she was going to move in with him. And he had invited Martha's mother to move in with him. That would have been fine. She didn't, but it would have been fine. But, but he didn't want his mother. And here's the letter he wrote to her, because it's really quite a letter. He said, my house is at your service, and I would press you most sincerely and most devoutly to accept it. But I am sure, and candor requires me to say, it will never answer your purposes. For in truth, it may be compared to a well-resorted tavern as scarcely any stranger who are going from north to south or from south to north do not spend a day or two at it. So he said, that gives you three choices. The first would always be to be dressed for people of distinction. The second would be to appear in disabile. And the third would to be a prisoner in your own chamber. And he said she wouldn't like the first, he wouldn't like the second, and neither would like the third. So she did not move in. 
Whoa, he did not like his mother. Well, there goes my mama's boy right out the window on hello, the first president. So Gil, Cokie's going to do the early presidents, Gil's going to do the middle presidents, and Elizabeth's going to do the more contemporary. So give us a, a good example in the middle. Well, a, a good example of a presidential mama's boy would be Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Perfect. Uh, the emphasis Perfect. on Delano. <laughs> um, when he was in prep school and was sick one day, and he was in a second floor uh, room, there was a knock on his window, and Sarah Delano Roosevelt, ignoring the rules that you weren't allowed to visit your son, had climbed up with a ladder <laughs> to see her boy and to let him know that not only was he uh, being supervised, but she was there. And um, this happened also through the marriage when uh, Franklin Roosevelt married Eleanor. First of all, she did not want her marrying Eleanor. He didn't, did not want him marrying Eleanor. Um, and the wedding present was a townhouse on East 65th Street but it came out with one little string attached, Sarah. She was right next door in a parallel townhouse with two entrances oh. uh, through the kids' rooms and through the main entrance. And the she was rooms? a presence. Um, in many ways, she also kept the marriage together when the letters that Franklin Roosevelt um, and Lucy Mercer had exchanged were revealed and Eleanor was ready to leave Franklin and they were talking about a divorce. Sarah made it very, very clear that the money that she controlled uh, because the estate had gone completely to her, which was strange in those days, um, would be cut off if Franklin divorced Eleanor. And so that kept the marriage together, although the marriage uh, was never quite the same. And we all know that uh, Lucy Mercer, then Lucy Mercer Rutherford, was by was Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt's side when he died in uh, well, she, Warm Springs years later. Sarah wouldn't give him up, but how did he feel about her? So he had his ambivalence, uh, but he also appreciated, he appreciated her role. Um, he often went back to her for advice. Um, when he was asked to run for the state legislature in, uh, in, in New York, he said, I've got to ask mom, um, before he asked Eleanor. And Eleanor wasn't so happy with that. And in the White yeah, House. State party leaders. Uh, right. <laughs> and in the White House, she had an interesting role. You know, the New Deal was a time of tremendous class conflict. And Franklin Roosevelt was being seen as a traitor to his class. And Sarah, by his side, and there are some reports, I looked at this, there, there conflicting reports, but there are some reports that she was in, even there for the first fireside chat. Mm -hmm. And she, as part of the Delano Roosevelt clan, being there was a way of taking away some of the sting from the class conflict. And she also, with her imperious ways, was known as the queen of the White House. Uh, there was major tensions between her and Eleanor. Eleanor was a terrible housekeeper and had this um, horrific awful woman, cook. Nesbitt, who, was, um, who served awful food, but she kept her on. I think it's sort of a passive-aggressive Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> move. And, um, and, and the one time that Eleanor Roosevelt stood up to uh, Sarah, in addition to holding on to the housekeeper, was when Sarah wanted to fire all the black butlers because she only wanted white help. And Eleanor said, no, that's not acceptable. But when the other Roosevelt's, the Theodore Roosevelt family, uh, Alice Roosevelt Longworth and others were um, attacking Franklin Roosevelt for betraying the class and for being such a bad president, Sarah was asked, why are they attacking uh, Roosevelt? And she goes, oh, I think they're just jealous because we're better looking. <laughs> that was a way of kind of diffusing some of the tensions. Well, I, I can add a little tiny thing on Roosevelt because um, I've been doing some research on grandmothers. And she was much closer to the children, the, the great grand, her great-grandchildren, than Eleanor was to her grandchildren. And the great-grandchildren called Sarah Granny, <laughs> but the grandchildren 
and the, grand, the, great, the grandchildren called Eleanor Grand Mare. <laughs> and Eleanor said herself that she did not know how to mother, that she couldn't cuddle, and admitted even that Sarah had been more of a mother to her children than she had been. She's admitted this herself. So, you know, I always thought that Sarah was a monster. And in one of the books I read, they said, you think that because Eleanor wrote the history. <laughs> but some in the family paint a completely different picture of Sarah as being loving, fun, and uh, kind of a, a, a much better parent than the wonderful Eleanor Roosevelt that we all know. And a presence for Franklin. Yeah, and, and Franklin. Who was lonely in that marriage. She was too. But. There you go. Yeah. OK, Elizabeth, somebody contemporary, more. Well, let's Nara. go back and talk about Ms. Lillian then, because she was, uh, I think one thing that we all had in common that we're hearing is very, very strong women. Whether or not they were, the, were guiding their sons into the White House is another question, or whether they were the dominant force is another question. But they were all very strong women to which she joined the Peace Corps at age 68 and went off to uh, work in a leprosy clinic in India. Um, she had also helped to launch Jimmy's uh, enterprise and business career when he was eight by getting him to sell boiled peanuts on the streets of Plains <laughs> and therefore kind of you know, inculcating him a sense of being the entrepreneurial business guy and, of course, the peanut farmer from Plains that we later got to know more. But a lot of the time, the family thought of her as somewhat distant because she was very, she was a working mother, she was a nurse, she was very, very involved in, in, in uh, other activities. She also was uh, helped to elect her husband to the state legislature. And in 1964, she was the, um, the chairman in Sumter County for Lyndon Johnson's uh, presidential campaign. So some say that's part of how Jimmy sort of caught the fever and saw the, the uh, you know, the, what was going between his father and, he, was, he very much loved his father as well. She also said that he had always set his mind, Jimmy set his mind on things, wanted to go to the Naval Academy and did. But she often said that he really wasn't the smart one in the family. He was a nice, lovely little boy, but Gloria, now she was the smart one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Right. I guess she wasn't what I was thinking. <laughs> she was very blunt, very, very blunt. She also was asked whether she would go to the opening of Billy's Brewery, the ribbon cutting of Bre Billy's Brewery, and she said, well, of course. I went to Jimmy's inaugural, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Miss Lillian. She um, hated the White House because she thought it was really boring. And yeah, when... Um, but when Jimmy was getting ready to run, she told him that he had to stop all that good Christian stuff. He had to stop all that stuff about saying he never told lies. He had to stop all that stuff <laughs> about... He sure listened to her. Right. <laughs> and he had to stop all that stuff about saying that he had the same feelings for his wife as he had the moment that he'd seen her. And just get a really good-looking running mate. That was her advice to him. So, uh, so I guess he didn't listen to mom. No, I guess he really didn't listen no. too much to mom. On well, that, that was stuff. great. All right, on, my theory is gone. It stood him in good stead. Pardon me? It would have stood him in good stead. If she, Don't you if, think? If he had yeah. listened to her. Don't you yeah. think? Yeah. Okay, Koki, come go back. Well, sorry, but so I don't really know anything about John Adams' mother except for this little detail. Uh, so after he was elected president, he desperately wanted Abigail to come join him in Philadelphia. Um, once he, after his inauguration. And, um, and he kept writing her these letters every day saying uh, that you, you've got to come. 
and and he and every day you know another it was more insistent more insistent and abigail had was there getting everything under control at the farm she had she had been the only one who had kept i mean most of the founders ended up poor but she was such a good um, steward of the finances that, that the Adams did not, and she was back making, getting everything in order, but she was also taking care of his mother who was dying. And he writes to her and says, it seems to me that the mother and daughter ought to think a little of the president as well as the, <laughs> as the husband, his cares, his anxieties, his health, don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so there you now, go. now we know that Abigail herself was, of course, a very strong mother, to put it mildly, and um, of a president. Of a president, although she did not live to see John Quincy Adams become president. She oh, she, she died before he was elected, but she she did live to see him become Secretary of State. And before that, he was ambassador to uh, Russia, and she wrote to Madison and said, basically, get him home, you know. Uh, this is ridiculous. We don't want him in Russia anymore. And, and Madison said, whatever you say, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then he realized that John, John Quincy actually wanted to stay in Russia, and so he had some difficulty with that. Now, the truth is she didn't raise John Quincy Adams. He went off with his father on diplomatic missions when he was 11 years old. But he does remember, he did remember uh, what it was like before that. And this is, this is um, the wonderful new children's book of Founding Mothers, which is wonderfully illustrated. That Cokie wrote. The, the, but it's <laughs> neglecting to tell you. Story. The illustrations are great. And, um, and he wrote uh, that when he and his mother and the other children, he was the oldest of, of four, uh, he says, for the space of 12 months, my mother with her infant children dwelt liable every hour of the day and night to be butchered in cold blood or taken and carried to Boston as hostages, which was the case. Now, the children loved that, of course, butchered in cold blood. But, um, <laughs> but, he, um, but he was very admiring of her. Uh, even though he was not terribly you love close her. To her well I'm I you she do was, come on I, she was Stay. a complicated person um, her politics got sort of squirrely uh, but um, I mean she was a big supporter of the alien and sedition acts and I am not uh, as a journalist but um, but she but she is a very interesting person and he did write when she died in his diary which he kept every day from the time he was 12. My mother was an angel upon earth. She has been to me more than a mother. She has been a spirit from above, watching over me for good and contributing by my mere consciousness of her existence to the comfort of my life. That consciousness is gone, and without her, that world feels to me like a solitude. Wow. Oh, what it must be to my father, and how will he support life without her who has been to him its charm. So he did understand her value. Wow. You know, when I was developing the theory that they were all mama's boys and you, that you have shredded within the first three minutes of this whole thing, <laughs> the one thing I did know that was that both George Washington, as you say, and Thomas Jefferson hated their mothers, both of them. But then it turns around once we get into the, into the meat of it. <laughs> All right, we want to pick another one from uh, the middle? 
how do you raise an egomaniacal narcissist who pulls every ounce of energy out of the room like right. London Johnson? <laughs> it didn't take a village, it took a mother, uh, Rebecca Baines Johnson, who was quite formidable in and of herself. When, uh, and, and there was a major power struggle between the dainty, well-educated Rebecca and uh, the crass, vulgar, hard-drinking, hard-living Mr. Sam Johnson. Uh, so much so they couldn't even agree on what to call the baby. And he was the baby for three months. And <laughs> she kept on making suggestions and Mr. Sam kept on vetoing it. And so finally one morning she woke up and said, I'm not getting out of bed and serving you breakfast until we pick a name. I'm gonna start doing the vetoing. And Mr. Sam suggested Dayton and she said no. And Mr. Sam suggested Clarence, and she said, no, Clarence Johnson. Um, and finally he said Lyndon, and he wanted L-I-N, and she said L-Y-N, and uh, she said, done. And then Mr. Sam said, okay, naming's over, make some breakfast. Um, <laughs> good old days on the farm. Well, she focused all her energy on Lyndon Johnson, and she really wanted to give him, and they were in a hard scrabble, um, very ugly existence, and she wanted to teach him the piano, and she wanted to teach him how to dance. Um, and in fact, when he was eight years old and he stopped playing, the, actually it was the violin, he stopped playing the violin and dancing, she pretended that he had died and went into mourning. So take that, tiger mom. He had a <laughs> Texas tiger mom. Um, but, but he appreciated the love and he appreciated the fact also that they often ignored the other siblings um, in order to focus so much attention on Lyndon. And uh, it hurt him that she had such a hard life and had hurt him that she endured so much poverty. And he said, you know, my mother was the greatest female I've ever met, which is sort of a problem when you have two daughters and a, a wife, wife. Yeah. Um, who was quite a formidable and special <laughs> right. woman in her own right. Um, but many people think that one of the reasons why Lyndon Johnson was so motivated to create the Great Society and so motivated to eliminate poverty was because he had seen what it had done to his mother, how it crushed her and he wanted to make sure that it wouldn't happen. So here we see there's a policy implication sometimes, but certainly I know a psychobiographical uh, impulse that plays out. He's one of the reasons that I was developing my theory. Um, I'm, I'm, ba I'm backing you up here, Leslie. I know, I appreciate also it. His, fa his father, he was so embarrassed yes, by yes, his yes. father. And I think that that's a huge part of it as well. So let me read you something from Bonnie Angelo's book on this subject. Um, she said that of the 12 presidents that she looked at from FDR through George W. Bush, um, most of them married late in life. So they were older mothers, and most of them married down and against their father's wishes, like Hannah Milhouse. None married up. And the loss of position heightened their determination to through their children mm. to move back up in status. And that was one of the, the, the motivating forces in these men's lives through their mothers. Now, maybe the men didn't and love the their mothers. And the men married up, too. The fathers Johnson married up. Did. Yeah. I mean, no, no, but the sons. Oh, the sons Johnson. married up. Yeah, Johnson certainly did. Right. A lot of sons married up. But this motivation from an unhappy mother, unhappy in her marriage, having disappointed her own father, um, I, whether they love their mothers or not, was yeah. clearly in these later years a, f a factor. So you want to do another contemporary one? Let's talk about the two Bushes, because that gives Perfect. us two mothers to talk about. And it's a good thing to do because they're actually very similar, the two women. Uh, he married his mother. <laughs> sort well, of. Well, kind of, sort of, a little, maybe a little teeny. Well, they were both from very, very privileged backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, 
Dorothy Bush, Dorothy Walker was a, uh, Walker Bush was a uh, debutante from St. Louis, a very wealthy family. Um, she had spent all of her summers, in fact, she was born in Maine, uh, where, where the, at Walker Point, where the Kind of is. Yeah, that was the family uh, getaway. And so she had, she had a wonderful, loving, long marriage uh, herself as well to Prescott Bush, who by all accounts was a very handsome man. Um, they had bunches of children. George was the eldest, of course. Uh, she was very demanding, very competitive. She was a very, in a very, and set these very kind of hard, and hard but subtle but nasty wasp rules. Um, <laughs> and um, it sort of takes one to know one, I can say. <laughs> this is a, um, which is very often the kind of, I mean, you want to talk passive aggressive, that's too kind. <laughs> um, you know, so she, she demanded a great deal from her kids, particularly in terms of athletic prowess. They had to be very good at that. And she put up with nothing. She, did, she would say to George, no whining ever. That was one of the cardinal rules. That is like a serious wasp sin, whining. You don't ever do that. So she was, she was very demanding on that. Um, and she also was very, uh, well, in her latter years, she went, even when she was 87 years old, she loved to hang out at the White House in her wheelchair and greet tourists. So she kind of got sort of, you know, sort of spunky and feisty in those old years. But she put a lot of pressure on uh, George to excel, but generally not through direct pressure, kind of this sort of like, you will, of course, uphold the family name, and you will, of course, live up to this great legacy that you've been handed of this incredible pedigree. And then, in turn, Barbara came, of course, from um, a lot of money as well. Uh, she and George met at a Christmas ball at the uh, Greenwich Country Club when she was 16 and he was 18. And boing, you know, it was one of those things where they just, and they too had a sort have, I shouldn't talk in the past tense, have a sort of seahorse marriage. You know, one of those ones, married for life, loving for life. So it seems. With some ups and downs. So it seems. Yeah, well, with some major ups and downs and, and some rumored ups and downs that were never able to be verified completely, but we don't really know all of them. Yes. But, but um, and she too put, yes, and she too put great demands on um, young George in many ways in terms of, of, of doing well. The same thing, setting it up, you know, making sure that he was, it was doing well according to the social standards as, as opposed necessarily doing well. Uh, achieving, do you know? Was a lot of it was uh, was a lot of it was upholding the kind of the, the family image a lot of that stuff. Um, she was very uh, determined to see him succeed. I think. Um, I think one thing that's interesting, she and, and Dorothy were kind of BFFs, and they got, they were very very close to one another. Mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law BFFs. Yeah, that's unusual. Um, yeah, it is very unusual. And she yeah. she basically said that she actually preferred Dorothy to her own mother, and they were very much they were so much alike that Barbara said that as she got older, when she looked in the mirror, she didn't see crow's feet. She saw the, or the the face of a woman with crow's feet. She saw the face of a woman who needed to improve her serve. <laughs> um, so she was really channeling Dorothy so much in that way. He married his mother. He did. What I loved about Dorothy and her when he was in president was that she did two things. One, one was, of course, she kept after him on the broccoli. Um, that was his one act of rebellion. That was his right, was to not eat the broccoli. But, um, but she also came out very strongly for the chemical weapons treaty. 
And he was not at all pleased with that. And uh, she, was, she was out there lobbying on it. That is admirable. I knew a guy who was in his class, George Herbert Walker's class at Andover. And he brought his uh, yearbook. And everybody in the class had half a page. And then you got to Bush. And he had two full pages because he was the president of every club. He was the captain of every team. He was in every club they had in the entire school. And, and it took two pages to tell everything he had done at Andover in his four years. But he would have never said it himself. No, well, he took two, probably not, but I think it was the background and his mother pushing, pushing. Well, the background was also that you never talk about yourself. That was oh, right. one of the things that uh, Dorothy said to George, was you're talking about yourself too much, stop that. Well, she said don't use the word I, and maybe that's why he always spoke in telegrams and didn't have any pronouns. <laughs> From his mother. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, the, uh. She also told him to stand up straight during one of the debates, which is a wonderful, another classic sort of mommy thing to do. You know, like she wasn't focusing on what was, he was saying so much and what he looked like. So don't tell me these mothers don't have a huge impact, <laughs> huge role. Well, Barbara you know Bush said that, that actually that she said that uh, George loved his father, but that his mother was 10 times more important in his life. So there's your theory, Leslie. You got it. It's a, we well, but also it. she was very, very powerful in the second Bush's life. Very, very powerful. Barbara as, as a kind of strong mother. Um, you know, a lot of the stories about presidents are told extremely well, I think, and interestingly, through their mothers-in-law. And I don't know who wants to talk about Truman, but that story never gets tired. <laughs> Gil, you want to do Happy Truman? To do that. And the mother-in-law? She, she was a piece of work. Um, <laughs> the mother-in-law. She didn't want Bess to marry Harry, and in fact, for 20 years, succeeded in pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off. They were high school, they were not only high school sweethearts, they were Sunday school sweethearts. Oh. When they were five years old, oh. Harry Truman fell in love with Bess, and he carried a torch for her. And um, She didn't like him back for a long time. No. No. Forever, no. yeah. Um, but uh, Madge Wallace looked down her nose at Harry because he was a country bumpkin, and they were very highfalutin. And um, in fact, when he became vice president and president, part of her anger was the fact that she had been proved wrong, that he wasn't a, <laughs> a good for nothing. And, uh, and they went back and forth to Missouri. And it was a very difficult time for, Bess also didn't like the public glare. Um, she didn't like being in the White House. Uh, the mother-in-law would come and go and bring all her negativity with her. Um, you know, Harry Truman, of course, had lived in the mother-in-law's house. So here's this man in his 60s, he's president of the United States, and he's living in the Gates mansion. Um, uh, and never in his, in his own home. Um, and then and, she came with him to the White House. And, right? and would come and come to the White House. And, uh, On the rare occasions when Bess would show up. And, when, and one moment when Bess actually did stand up to her mother was, you know, there was this major power struggle between Harry Truman and Douglas MacArthur. And MacArthur ultimately was fired by Truman. And uh, Mrs. Wallace said, why did he fire that nice man? <laughs> and Bess Truman said, my husband's the president, and he was insubordinate. And that was the one time that Bess drew the line. Uh, but how did, with, uh, do you know how Harry Truman felt about this negative woman who just uh, was, was horrible to him? He, you know, two things. First of all, Harry Truman had a raft of insecurities. So she only kind of confirmed them. Um, and he internalized it. But also it was a very different time. He was an extremely elegant man. And you would not find an instance in his correspondence, he wrote voluminously, um, in which he was disrespectful. Uh, toward his mother-in-law. And he, first of all, he loved Bess, and he put her on a pedestal. And um, one of the amazing things is that we have letters that he would write sometimes two, three times a day. Um, 
and Bess burned all the letters that she wrote. And uh, there's a famous story that um, after the presidency, Harry Truman comes home one day and sees Bess burning all the letters, and he goes, Bess, what about history? She goes, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. <laughs> he felt that Harry belonged to history now, but she didn't want her private thoughts. So that you can find very few Bess letters, but you, you listen in to this conversation. Um, it's you know, pre-email, pre-phone. I mean, the phones are used, but not, not as much. And you really have this kind of transcript of their love affair. And so I think he so loved Bess that he wouldn't be disrespectful to the mother, and you had to respect the mother. And it was also very complicated, because underlying it also was, was a family secret. And one of the reasons why Bess didn't want Harry to go so far in politics, and one of the reasons why uh, Mrs. Wallace was so angry when uh, Harry Truman started to succeed was because 30 years earlier, Mrs. Truman's, um, uh, Mrs. Wallace's husband had committed suicide. He woke up one morning, went into the bathtub, and shot himself so it would be clean. Um, so shameful. And, and it was so shameful, yeah. they didn't talk about it. And in fact, wow. Margaret Truman, who grew up in the house in which her grandfather killed himself, only found out about her grandfather's suicide when uh, Harry Truman was picked to be vice president. And reporters started sniffing around. And one of the aunties said, oh, you know what they're worried about. They're worried about the secret. And <laughs> Margaret said, what's Aunts secret? Ants always Boom. And, right, and, and that was it. And so, they, they, so I think Harry also had a certain sensitivity to, to the, the trauma that they had undergone, but they just didn't talk about it. It was different times. But Leslie, we have a mother-in-law in the White House right now. And, um, and that has ended up exactly. a very useful thing for that whole family. Do um, we know that much? This is Marion Robinson, who is living in the White House basically to take care of the girls. Do we know that much about her? She's yeah, we know so pretty much about demure. her. Um, she's, she's, she has a very nice life in Washington. She has you know, made her own friends, and she's out in the theater, and you see her. Um, and she, you see, she, have you seen her? Yeah, yeah. At Ford's, <laughs> you know, where the Lincoln box is. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she, um, uh, but I think that, that the president's very funny about her. He says, oh, I love having her here, you know. When, uh, when Michelle gets on me, she defends me. <laughs> <laughs> Does? Yeah, so I, I think that uh, having a mother-in-law in the White House is, is something that we hadn't seen for a long time, but it's really been oh. very, the full time of this presidency. I also I, that, she I, often I, doesn't, that she also often doesn't show up to the dinner, uh, the dinner hour, because she says, that's Obama family time, and I want to stay away. And, and Michelle and Barack say, no, come. And she says, no, no, it's your time, which is lovely. I mean, there's a, nice certain, there's a certain sense of, of distance. Um, I know a mother-in-law story, <laughs> Eisenhower. <laughs> so Mamie would be up in her bedroom, up on the second floor of the White House, which she decorated all in pink, and it was a separate bedroom from Ike's. And every morning, she would have breakfast served to her in bed. And she was a very frou-frou-y kind of woman. Her mother was two doors down the hall, also lived in the White House on the second floor. And while Mamie was having breakfast, she'd pick up the phone and call her mother <laughs> two doors down. And they would spend breakfast, both of them in bed, talking to each other. <laughs> all the time. And the, and the mother-in-law was living in the White House with Ike and so forth and so on, which probably explains Kate Summersby. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another it's mother by I talk about, too, and that's Dorothy Rodham, because, of course, Dorothy Rodham was uh, Bill Clinton's mother-in-law, and it's not out of the question that she now may end up being deceased, albeit, but a first mother as well. Right. Uh, so, and right. her influence on her daughter was very strong. She had gone through a depressed, terrible depression in her childhood, horrible. She was, her parent, her father divorced her mother, 
when she was very, the two little girls were very young, and she and her sister were shipped up to live with relatives in Alhambra, California. Her grandparents, the grandparents hated the kids. It was like a horrible, slavish thing. She escaped by becoming a $3 a week nanny. And what she imbued in her daughter was a resolute and sort of steel will, and to keep your chin up and finish what you start. Indeed, when um, Hillary called in her freshman year, having the freshman crisis that everybody in the world has had or everybody's child has had, which is, you know, I'm not, I can't handle it, I, don't, I hate this, I'm never going to finish this, I'm not so smart as everybody else, and she said, you finish what you started. So you see it through. So that may explain some of what we see. You know, it's interesting. They say that successful women almost always had a strong father. Mm. pushing them. You don't often hear that women had a strong mother with their foot in the back pushing, pushing, pushing. So what time is it? I'm going to, let's, let's do one last quickie round before we turn it over to the audience. Um, pick your favorite in all three of your time periods, or you, you can jump around. You can jump, we can do time travel here. <laughs> pick your favorite one little mother President's story. Can I just pick one that, yep. I, I just want to, I know I'm not supposed to use notes, but I had to because Virginia, <laughs> Dell, Cassidy, Blythe, Clinton, Dwyer, Kelly. <laughs> You're kidding. No. Oh, that's Bill's mother. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Clinton twice because she divorced him and then remarried him, right? And I think it's from her that Bill got his sort of flamboyance. She had, a, Mr. Dwyer was her hairdresser, the one who persuaded her to have the sort of, you know, white kind of skunky-like look down the front. And so- She married him? Yeah, she married him. That was one of the husbands. I can't imagine. She outlived me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, get free hairstyle, I guess. <laughs> Um, and she was very, uh, she was a party girl. She would stand on the table and dance. She loved to sing. She would, she said, I just love men. And when she first met, and she made that very evident with the numerous marriages <laughs> and so forth, when she first met Hillary, she was very disappointed because Bill had been hanging out with beauty queens, and he brings home this girl with mousy brown hair and glass, Coke bottom glasses, and the worst offense of all no makeup. Now, Virginia favored the kind of foundation that you put on with a trowel, <laughs> and she always wore false eyelashes everywhere she went. And this could date from the fact that she said she just loved Liberace, and she, had, uh, she said, I love his clothes, I love his jewels, I love his makeup. But she may have taken that too much to heart, because she indeed went everywhere with her kind of um, floozy. She had bright colors until Mr. Dwyer, the hairdresser, persuaded her she should get some, some more some subdued colors. Um, and she did have a strong influence on Bill in a lot of ways. As we know, he intervened when she was married to Mr. Clinton, and he, Mr. Clinton was physically abusing uh, Virginia. And so that, uh, Bill was 14, and he really, he really stood up and for the first time took over and became Virginia's protector, a role he continued. But it was, very, it was a very mutually adoring society. I think we have to mention Hannah Milhouse Nixon. Oh, yes. My yes. mother was a saint. He's yeah. as, as, as the White House was crumbling around him and, and, and the Watergate scandals, he's leaving my mother was a saint. Um, and, and, and she was well, that. That was a she, very emotional moment, it was, actually. It was. Yeah. Uh, he didn't mention his father, which is also, you know, fits yeah. into your um, theory. 
And, and she was also a tough lady when uh, she married her husband, Frank, who was a Methodist, and she was a Quaker. Richard Nixon would say uh, they compromised and they became Quakers. Um, <laughs> she set the tone. Um, it was also one of those households where even though Nixon had older brothers and younger brothers, the three other brothers were stuck in one room, and Richard Nixon had his own room so he because he was the studious one, and he was destined for greatness. And uh, when he was nine, this um, very literate young boy watching the Teapot Dome scandal, which was the first scandal, uh, we hoped only, but it wasn't, um, that sent uh, cabinet members to jail. He said to his mother, he said, Mom, when I grow up, I'm going to be a lawyer, and I won't take bribes. One out of two ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Harry Truman's mother was a delight. Um, and she and she pushed him in all the right kinds of ways, I think. And and uh, of course her her, I mean she made sure he read and all that. But the piano was her big, her big. Uh, he was a really accomplished pianist. Yeah. Yes, he ended up being quite good. But yeah. she uh, but she made that happen. And did she push him into all that reading? He, he, all the, the reading. reading. Yes, all of that. Yes, that was his mother. And she, she was, was she was, but she she was well educated, right? Am I right? She she was. As well educated as one could expect for that time and place. For a while. did she go to college? I think she did go to college. Yeah, yeah and she believed in books and, and yeah, and Tennyson and poetry and, and all of that, Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah, but she seemed like a really nice person. But when he was president, and you lot reporters were after her, uh, she said, "If your president's so powerful, why can't you shoot them away?" <laughs> <laughs> no, but Which she I liked. <laughs> she was very warm-hearted and the right. opposite kind of right. person to his mother-in-law. Mother and was never welcomed in Mrs. Wallace's house. In, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so my God. What a Margaret horror. would go out to visit the country grandma. You know, there are just some people you never read one positive <laughs> word about. There's no, there's no revisionist <laughs> history here. There's exactly. No. All right. So do you have any questions? There are microphones. I can see them. Just step up and fire away. But if not, I'll keep going. <laughs> You know, what do we know, while well, we wait to see if someone steps up, what, what do we know about the fathers? Um, I know that there were a lot of difficult relationships with their fathers, and, um, and we've even alluded to Bill Clinton, of course, that was his stepfather. But there have been a lot of cases where the mother was unhappy with the father, and fathers were failures. A lot of weak fathers in this group of presidents we have and the son saying, I'm never going to be like that. Well, and just to interject on Clinton, I mean, that's because his mother was six months pregnant when his father was killed. His father was a traveling salesman. She was 23 years old, six months pregnant, and he was killed in a car accident while driving back from Missouri and was thrown from the car and drowned in a ditch. So, um, nice. and, but again, because there was a, a kind of a, a gift for both denial and sort of... Uh, uh, compartmentalizing in that family, shall we say, that it was many years later she claims that she found out that she was actually his fifth wife. And she didn't know that. And she was 23 and he was 27. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and then well, he went to live with his grandparents. Bill did. And, yes. And was yes. distressed. Oh, like when Obama. He had, when he had, exactly. When yes, he had just to, like Obama. Maybe we should do something on grandparents. Right. Um, Lincoln hated his father. Um, George think, Washington hated his father. Thomas Jefferson hated his well, father. So Thomas Jefferson hated give you both one. of them? Jack Kennedy didn't. <laughs> right. What? Jack Kennedy had a strong father. Yeah. Who, uh, and he and, didn't, and he... And an absent mother. And had contempt for Rose. Yes. That's true. Which we learned much later, because they had 
made so much right. of her when he was president. Here we have a question. Hi. As a working mother of three boys, nine, five, and five. You're busy. I, I <laughs> have the struggle with the guilt of working, but the need to work. In the knowledge you have of the presidential mothers, and I think this is going to shift as time passes, how many of the mothers worked? And how many of the mothers who worked had a difference in shaping their sons? It's really good. See, I think the question is: for most of history, everybody worked, and uh, you know you now you're just talking about working outside of the home for pay. But these women worked very, very, very hard, and couldn't possibly spend all their time dealing with their children. Um, there was much too much to do. I mean, life in the 18th and early 19th century was so hard. Just getting through the day was so hard. Uh, and children could not be treated like some special creatures who demanded a great deal of attention. They grew up better. And, um, <laughs> and they, um, and uh, so that, you know, I, you know, I think To your that point, there's this new book out that says that childhood, the way we know it, didn't begin until after the Industrial Revolution because right. children worked the farm. That's right. That's right. And they, so children worked and mothers children worked. Children were just short grown-ups. Yeah, and um, and so it was. It was just a di completely different view of childhood, and they they did fine. And they so they also did not have play dates, and they also <laughs> did not have enriched childhoods. Uh, there is, but I want to know whether all three of those boys are going to be president. <laughs> I don't know. I, I asked. Well, the, the Bush family is working on that model. Yeah. <laughs> but shocking. Here's a more uh, a, a sort of tangential question. Sure that if these mothers put so much of their unfulfilled dreams into their sons, what happens when you have working women who are fulfilled? And what kind of ambition right. do they send on to the next generation? I, I find sure that there'll be some neurotic ones out there doing Oh, I didn't say we don't make them <laughs> neurotic. I didn't say that. <laughs> you get a hint of some of the tensions that you're alluding to in the Carter household where Ms. Lillian, as you were saying, was always busy going off to the Peace Corps and nursing. Um, and Jimmy Carter and his, sis and his sister were often getting notes from Ms. Lillian, do this, do that, mm -hmm. I'll be home, I'll be home. Uh, in fact, they called the desk mother because the, note, <laughs> the notes were always on the desk. And uh, <laughs> talk about passive aggressive much. <laughs> yeah, a little. Yeah. Well, is, Ouch. <laughs> is Obama the only president, I don't know, who was raised by his grandparents? Because that's an interesting phenomenon as well. Well, he, I mean, Bill Clinton spent a little bit of time, but it was yes. only while she was finishing nursing school in Louisiana. So it was, but, but it, and, know, it was like a year or so. You have, you have presence of grandmothers because, again, you had different kinds of households. And yeah, they all lived in little places next door and around the corner, which we don't do anymore. But when, when I read Dreams of My Father, uh, Barack Obama's book, which is The Search for the Father, I felt there was a lot of tension around the mother. Um, which a lot of people oh, haven't yeah. picked up on. I, I, you know, first of all, she was in Indonesia half the time right. when he was in Hawaii. Exactly. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff there, and they've kind of prettified it. But well, I'm um, sure. I think he when we felt, drill down, I think um, he must have felt all, he all abandoned of the grown ups in his life. Yeah. she did. Yeah. She did it. Yeah. Truly being abandoned. Yeah, he, he certainly felt that. If he was you, a you know, also well, David Marinus's book. Yeah. actually says it. I think. Yeah. And going back to your grandmother's model, I think that Dorothy was a big, oh, sorry, was a big influence also on young George. 
because they spent all the time at the summer compound and so forth. Oh, right. was a lot of, so, so there was a lot of that, that you know, she, she was very, very close to the grandchildren, all of them. Whether this is apocryphal or not, I don't know, and then I'll lead to my question. I had read that when Bill Clinton brought Hillary home to his mother, she, like you said, they didn't approve, she didn't approve of her, and he said to her, and I don't know if this is true or not, if it's not Hillary, it's nobody. And did they ever resolve their relationship? Um, did she ever develop a relationship with his mother who was really so much different than she was? Well, that's a really good question. Um, she called, uh, it's a, what was it? She called it a, 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 Virginia called her relationship with Hillary a growth experiment <laughs> and said that, <laughs> yeah. and, but toward the end of her life, she said, well, now I love her dearly. So who really knows? I mean, I think uh, Hillary's too diplo diplomatic to say anything, but. It's true that he said to his mother, that's not Hillary, it's that, nobody. That's the legend. That's the legend. That's, and, that's said to be true. And the story also is that he said, I've had enough with beauty queens. Mm -hmm. Although, I don't think Ooh. he had. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately. Rumor has it. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that is but, but he didn't say anything about interns. Right. In <laughs> many ways, she was not really a good, Whatever ambition Bill Clinton had, what I've read, really comes from himself. She was really not a very good influence, and, and I feel that the good parts of him come from Hillary and his own determination and had nothing to do with his Well, mother. you may be right, but she also was a working mother. She, too, That's was a nurse. She was an anesthesiology nurse, yes. and she saved money very carefully so he could go, and she, she did send him off to Georgetown as opposed to the University of Arkansas, which would have been the more logical destination, uh, you know, coming from Little Rock and the, or from Did Hope. Did he want to go there because he had ambitions himself? He wanted to be in Washington. Of he course he had ambitions, yes, but the thing is she did, like she made them possible. Oh, okay. She did make them possible. I, and I, I tell you, go ahead. No, go. You After you. In, in, that, in, her, in, her, in her memoir, um, she, she talks about putting on the makeup. And sometimes it would take her 90 minutes. And, and you get the sense of the Clintons learning how to fight the world. Mm -hmm. And when you try to understand how did Bill Clinton put up with all that he's put up with and how was he able to survive and how was he able to kind of face the world, um, I, I think he got a lot of that from Virginia. She was a survivor. She was, there was a toughness there. There was a toughness there and also a kind of ambition. So I think, I think there, there, there was a kind of uh, okay, thank you. legacy. I, a mother-in-law, a mother daughter-in-law, situation that actually started out just horribly uh, was Abigail Adams and John Quincy's wife, Louisa. Louisa. And she was, she was not born in this country. She was born in England. Her father was an American, but she was born in England. And when he brought her to Boston, she was sick and it was terrible. But um, Abigail just thought she wasn't going to live long enough to even pay attention to. And, um, <laughs> and she, she wrote that. And, um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and Louisa thought she, she ended, ended up, she wrote that she had ended up in Noah's Ark, you know, because she just thought everybody was so weird. <laughs> and um, and toward, it took a long time, but finally at the end of Abigail's life, uh, the two of them became friends. So we've had um, presidential families, Adams and Harrison, and Taft, even with candidates, Roosevelt's Kennedys, uh, or, or uh, yeah, as candidates, uh, Bush. We're entering an era now where there will be more woman elected officials. Many of them will be mothers, obviously. 
would you talk about, speculate about the dynamics of a mother who's an elected official who might conceivably uh, create a future president, female or male? Well, we do have models of mother of obviously uh, mothers who are political figures now in, in the form of a lot of governors. For example, Sarah Palin <laughs> would be one, um, and <laughs> about whom uh, Barbara Bush said, I met her once, she was very attractive, she said she really loves Alaska, and I hope she'll stay there. <laughs> we should have brought nothing but Barbara Bush quotes to this. Yes. I actually, Wait, let's I remember actually the conducted the first interview with Barbara and Laura Bush together. Oh. This, was, this was December Ooh. of 99. Oh, I don't want to and, um, Was Laura allowed to speak? Well, she was silenced at several points because, um, and actually it was a riot because uh, Laura was you know, the first lady of Texas and she is a very considerable woman. And she, um, and, um, and at various points she started to just tell me the truth. And, uh, and Barbara would go, <laughs> <laughs> don't answer that, you know. I'll answer it, you'll get in trouble. <laughs> it was great. What about, what about um, presidents who had young children? How did, their, how did the mothers uh, take care of those children? Do we know anything about well, the, when the, you know, the president who had young house. children that we, you think most about when you think about the White House is, is Teddy Roosevelt, you know, because they ran all over the place and they had all kinds of animals, you know, that were but all was, was his mother part of helping? No, no, but he had had, so his first wife had died and he had, that was the mother of the formidable Alice Lawn, Roosevelt Longworth, and then he had this gaggle of other children. And uh, they were, uh, they seemed to have no mother at all, as far as you could tell from uh, the way they were raised. I mean, it was, and, and in the Kennedy White House, right. um, Jackie's mother would come in uh, both to be with the kids sometimes and also to f fill in for Jackie, who either didn't want to be hosting something because she was with the kids or just really? because she was being Jackie. Did he like his um, mother-in-law? He was okay with her. There, was, yep. there, wasn't, there wasn't tremendous tension. Uh, but apparently at one point, um, Mrs. Auchincloss, Jackie's mother, was getting all these letters about Jackie's hairdo. The bouffant right. was not considered proper. And uh, so she tried to get Jackie to change it, but Jackie didn't listen. Um, <laughs> what mother does, right. what, what daughter listens to her mother? I mean, it was a gift to history, because it became well, And then I think also that Miss Lillian was, a, was very close to, to Amy Carter. Yeah. And she she spent a lot of time with Amy, who was kind of the the kind of you know the, the caboose child in that in the White yeah, House yeah, there, much younger than and that. a little awkward and uh, other kind of things at that point. Well, Sarah Roosevelt um, came to the White House because she was really their the mother in many ways. So I know she was there, and 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 Marion Robinson obviously. Yeah. And there's also dimension sometimes of the presidents and and the first ladies as grandparents. So, for example, the Reagans were grandparents. Uh, yeah, but White he House. didn't know it. And, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's don't laugh. And, That's a serious statement. No, no and, it's true. Very and, serious. And there's the famous story that you know Nancy had a gifting closet because she'd get gifts and was always recycling them. And one of the rare times that the entire Reagan family came together um, was for the inauguration. And um, Nancy also had all these issues about wealth because they were with the super rich people all the time and so they were rather cheap. And she also had all these issues. She didn't like the first two kids uh, of Ronald Reagan because they were from the first family. And um, uh, Michael Reagan, the adopted of the first family, comes with his, grandson, with his son, Cam. And Cam has this little teddy bear. He's a toddler. And Cam loses the teddy bear. 
in the White House. Well, the next birthday, Cam gets it gift wrapped <laughs> uh, from Nancy. No. Happy birthday! Um, as if it was a new, fresh teddy bear. Um, and that's Nancy's recycling. No, but when I was covering the and White she was, House. And she started the foster grandparents program. No, that's the case. I was covering the White House, and, and those grandchildren never came. Yeah. I don't no, know I that they knew said, them. I always said that you or Steve was with you at the White House yeah. should say at a press conference, Mr. President, how many grandchildren do you have? And what are their names? And, uh, <laughs> and that would have just done it, you know. <laughs> but they had family values. <laughs> my husband, when, when there was a news conference, my husband used to say, I'd call him up and say, what should I ask the president? And he'd say, ask him to draw a map of the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, you know, we could go on all night, couldn't we? Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Leslie Elizabeth Marin, Bill Troy, Kofi Roberts.